This episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw & Order podcast listener, you can save 15% off Lefric backpacks and bags during the month of September by using the code PAWSEPTEMBER at grinninggoat.ca. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, Animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hello and welcome to episode 85 of the Pod Order Podcast. I'm your host, Camille Lapchuk, joined by one of my co-hosts today, Peter Sankov. Hello, Peter. Hello, Camille. So we have so much to talk about in this episode. I'm so, very so excited. Much. So, 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 so much. So, so much. So, so much. We were just talking before the show how excited we are. We're just both in such a good mood and just excited to do the show. <laughs> We're going to have special guest Chris Rudnicki on, who's a lawyer involved in a case that we're doing um, next week. Actually, by the time this podcast comes out, the case will have already happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're going to talk about the case of Chen in Alberta, which we've discussed a little bit on this podcast before. So I'm excited for that interview, Peter. Yeah, me too. And all kinds of other news. It's just, it's, it's, it's a great day, Camille, because like, you know, I just feel like it's a special day today here in Alberta. I just feel like, I just feel like I want to get out, go for a walk and enjoy the fact that Alberta is open for summer and really just enjoy the COVID free paradise that I, wait a minute. I, I seem to recall, I got an emergency <laughs> alert on my phone yesterday. <laughs> that's, that's where things have come to. We got, we, we were getting emergency emergency alerts because Alberta is now going back into partial lockdown. Can you believe it? <laughs> As we go, I think you must the have the worst wave. premier in Canadian history. Like what a buffoon Jason Kenney is. I, I'm, not I'm, allowed, I'm not allowed to comment, Camille. I'm not allowed to comment, but... Well, maybe well, I I've already tweeted about it, so I'm just going to go there. <clears throat> I'm, I'm frustrated, Peter, though, because this Chen case that we're going to talk about in more detail later on. Mm-hmm. It's an Alberta Court of Appeal case. And at one point, we thought there was some chance that you'd actually be arguing it in person. And so I had plans to come watch. Yeah, right. I was going to visit my dad, hang out with you for a while. It was going to be like first trip post, I shouldn't say post-COVID, but first trip since COVID. And, uh, you know, thanks to Alberta's ridiculousness, that's not going to happen. So I feel for you guys. Yeah, we, we learned. I think we spoke about this on the last podcast. Like I have the never ending lesson of COVID is like, take your moments when you have them. <laughs> My travel this summer, which is becoming a very fond and faint memory of, uh, you know, relatively COVID free times. Like we're going back. Like it was amazing. Just to give you an example of what it's like today in Alberta, like last week, last week, 
week. I'm in, I'm on sabbatical this term, so I'm not teaching, but I was at the university, right? Just because we were like discussing some mooting things and I was there with some colleagues and it was like this, I met with some students and they were all excited about how like we were getting back to a normal atmosphere and everything. And like last night after Kenny's announcement, like messages are going around how all classes are canceled. <laughs> it's like, it's just like, holy crap, we're going back into this and nobody knows what's coming. And, and I have a friend's wedding next week and like that's now on hold or we're not sure. And on and, and a much more serious note, um, I should say that all of this is of course much more serious than just lockdowns. I have, I have two friends who are, are missing surgeries um, because of uh, uh, hospital, hospital, you know, not closures, but hospitals are so full and ICUs are so crowded by COVID patients that, you know, all surgeries are being postponed or, or put off or whatever. And it's, it's really a, a, a terrifying situation that's going on here as numbers continue to rise. So like for all the inconvenience, there are, are very real tragedies going on, frankly, because of... <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Uh, mismanagement of COVID combined with, I, I don't even, you know, I, I don't know what to say anymore about human treatment of or skepticism about scientific fact. I, I don't know any longer uh, what more to say about the way people continue to treat um, COVID, the virus and the vaccine. It's really, it is staggering to me how we continue. It, it, of all the things that have happened with this virus since day one, that this is to me the one that continues to be the most perplexing and the most disappointing. I, I would have thought, Camille, if we had been betting on this way back in March of 2020, and you said, Peter, what's going to be the most disappointing part of how this all works out? I go, government reaction. I'm going to bet $1,000 on government reaction. And as it turns out, it's human reaction to the availability of vaccine that's going to win for all the money, isn't it? Like, isn't that going to be the one that wins? I think that's the ultimate winner because for all the government, you know, inadequacy, I think at the end of the day, it's it is the human, the 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 20 whatever percent of humans who who it's probably a lower number than that. But whatever it is, hesitancy, skepticism, slowness and outright refusal to get vaccine that's going to continue to cause the the virus uh, to, to spread and and go on indefinitely. Well, I'm a little optimistic, you know, at least in Ontario. I know this is not the case in Alberta, but the, the vaccine vaccination rate keeps inching up. They're really putting on a push to make it accessible to people who haven't had an opportunity yet because of circumstances and economic conditions. So I don't know, I'm still feeling optimistic, but maybe that's just colored by being in Ontario where it's not so bad yet. Um, now that schools are open, we'll see. So, you know, so let me, so the podcast comes out, it might be different. So let me put it another way. So let's go with this. Okay. Okay. Most disappointing event of pandemic, right? This is just, again, so when you when you put it on that scale, right, it's like government inadequacy or human reaction. I'm like, Kenny's open for summer announcement or anti-vaxxers protesting at hospitals. Like when you put it that way, it's kind of like, <laughs> like to me, like the government hasn't been great, but it's like to me, it's it's amazing what what's a certain segment of society has been like in 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 responding to scientific fact. Yeah, well, I mean that's humans for you, right? I guess, yeah. Scientific facts are widely available, yet people still choose to you know consume animal products. They're just so inconvenient. Slow, not slowly, quickly killing our planet. Oh well. Yeah, there we are. Oh well. Oh well. Okay, let's so talk about something you, else. How are you managing? How are you managing? What else has been going on? Let me let me tell you. 
tell you about one exciting thing here. Please. There was a Toronto Veg Fest last week. Wow, I can't I imagine. What was that like? As far as I know, it was uh, it was great actually. So it was it, it's usually held at Harborfront Place, which is uh, Harborfront Center, which is a great spot. It's like outdoors. Everything is like super COVID friendly. But that place has been closed since the pandemic started, so it wasn't available. So they had it at Steam Whistle Brewery instead, and you basically stood in line to get into this location. You bought stuff indoors and you took it outside and ate on a picnic blanket or wherever you wanted. So I thought it was pretty good. I know some people were, you know, waiting in line for a long time. I was lucky enough to have a skip the line pass. So that was great. But overall, Peter, it was just like such a sense of normalcy for a change, which I think so many of us are just craving. It was like, oh my God, we can do this again. We can like gather and eat vegan food together. It was great. That's good. I'm really happy for you. I don't know what normal is anymore. I'm, I'm waiting for normal to uh, happen. When it happens, I'll let you know. Yeah. Well, what, what's been keeping you busy? Uh, lots busy. Uh, I did before the election uh, came on. You may have seen I, I co-wrote an op-ed on animal issues, trying to hopefully get them on the agenda a little bit uh, with our good friend, uh, Dr. Kendra Coulter, that was published in the Toronto Star. We were bemoaning the fact that nobody, God, nobody seems to care about animals. And then suddenly, I don't want to say that one uh, caused the other, but suddenly a lot of people started talking about animals in the election. So, I mean, I, I do I do continue. The, the, the thrust of the op-ed was pretty straightforward, and it's something that both Kendra and I have thought about, and, and I've mentioned on the show before, the basic idea that every Western, every country in the Western world seems to manage to reform their Animal Welfare Act without angering or, you know, having people worry that farmers aren't going to be able to feed their family. And I'm talking about major agricultural nations. The UK is doing it right now. New Zealand has done it three times. Australia does it regularly. But in Canada, you can't even touch it. It's like some, excuse the, uh, you know, metaphor, sacred cow that you just can't touch, right? It's just completely, it's completely untouchable here. It's just, you just can't go near it. And 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 that is what continues to, you know, make, make that is the problem. The fact that it's untouchable is what, you know, because the longer, as we've learned, you know, if the Constitution has taught us anything, it's that the longer anything remains untouchable, the more impossible it is to fix. Just that's the way it is. So the longer that it becomes uh, that animal or especially that farmed animal welfare law becomes a sacrosanct thing that is untouchable, the, the harder it's going to be to get it fixed. And that's what we tried to say in our our legislation, that some 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 government has to be brave enough to say, we're going to do this. It doesn't even matter to me on, on a certain level um, how brave the reform is. Frankly, I would take almost any reform just to say, okay, we're going to start doing something. Uh, but, but, you know, that's what we tried to say in the article and uh, I, I stand by it. Well, it was a great piece. I'm glad that you guys wrote it. We are going to talk a lot about animals and their, imp their impact on the election in a little bit. We did on the last podcast too, but we've got a lot more to say about that. So, yeah, stay yep. tuned for more. And uh, right now, as we speak, I am working uh, very excited because I am in court next week. And it's always a thrill, really, because it's only happened a couple of times that I am in court for animal justice next week in a case called Chen. And uh, it is just really I love when I get to go into court and say that I'm there to speak for animals. That is really uh, a great sentence that I always like to say. And uh, it's 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 a tough sentence to say because it's a lot of pressure 
sure because like frankly i'm not sure exactly what the animals want me to say no one really knows i wish we could ask exactly (laughs) it's like it's a bit presumptuous to say that i'm speaking on their behalf so i don't actually phrase it that way because i'm not really speaking on their behalf i'm just trying to ensure that some aspect of their perspective of what's perhaps best for them is actually being put before the court because i know that if i don't speak on in in some sense on their behalf no one will that is the very real thing um, that, that is true when you're talking about animals' interests. That is very easy to say we've got this legislation that is designed to protect them, but yet when it comes to court proceedings, no one ever really speaks for animals in criminal proceedings. I certainly do not believe that the Crown ever speaks for animals. I don't think they have any interest in animals, just about. I mean, I don't want to say that they don't. They do speak for the public interest to some extent, and I do think in a broader sense they have some capacity Certainly individual prosecutors do care about animals, but like for every other crime in the criminal code, the individual victim has the right to speak for themselves, but animals do not. And that is a real problem. And I hope to address that problem to some extent when I get to speak for 15 minutes on behalf of those animals in the Chen case. So I'm looking forward to that. That's next Tuesday. Um, I believe the day in which this podcast is released. So uh, yeah, I look forward to that. Yeah. So if you're listening, Listening to this podcast first thing in the morning on Tuesday, when it, just when it comes out, um, you might be lucky enough to be able to go look at the Animal Justice Twitter account and find a link to watch those arguments live. They, they will be streamed online. Um, if not, we'll do a recap later on and uh, stay tuned for later in the episode when I chat with Chris Nikki, who's also counsel in the case about what it's all about. Now, what's going on with so, you, Camille? Yeah. Well, you know, the big thing right now is just conference season. So we are just about a couple weeks out from the Animal Justice uh, Canadian Animal Law Conference, which is super exciting. It's going to be a good one this year, Peter. We've got the student conference, as always, starting on Friday, October 1st. Um, our next episode of Paw and Order, in fact, will be a live Paw and Order recorded with all the hosts during the student conference. And uh, also on Friday, we have a set of scholars tracks session with some preeminent um, animal law and policy scholars who are going to speak about their work in moderated conversations with some pretty impressive moderators as well. You can visit the conference website to see the details of that, but we're really pleased to have the, the sponsorship and support of the Brooks Institute for Animal Rights Law and Policy to bring you those scholars track sessions. And that evening, Peter, so excited for this, we've got a keynote panel to kick off the main conference, which involves uh, five incredible thinkers on animal law, property, and personhood adjacent issues. So we've got Angela Fernandez, Manisha Deca, uh, Jessica Eisen, Stephen Wise, and Gary Francione. Wow. So all of these folks have contributed enormously to our ideas and understanding of what type of status animals should have, whether it should be personhood, should be property, something different like beingness as Manisha Deca um, discusses or, uh, you know, something in between. So really excited for that one. I think it's going to be a great debate. And then throughout the rest of the conference, we also have amazing sessions. There's one on egg-egg laws, of course, um, a panel about civil disobedience and its role in animal law and advocacy, featuring some people who've engaged in civil disobedience themselves, a session on animals and indigenous governance, um, a session about how we can legally protect vegan belief systems, one about animals' status in Quebec, just all kinds of incredible sessions. So CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca, it's not too late to register. And if you don't feel like sitting in front of your computer, all weekend. Don't worry, the sessions are all being recorded so you can access those for at least 60 days post-conference. Wow, great stuff. Great, great stuff. Now, let me remind you, there's nothing I love more
more than reviews. Reviews, reviews, reviews. Um, please, 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 if you can, leave us a review to add to our more than 150 five-star reviews. And Camille, we have a couple of new reviews, which I'm very excited about. Do you want to read our few review, our, our newest review? Yeah, I'll read the first one. So this one is from Pacific Veggie, who says, best podcast ever. My favorite podcast. I never miss an episode and always look forward to the next one. Very informative and entertaining. I love that. Thank you, Pacific Veggie. Short, but to the point. We love you too. Thanks for leaving your review. Well, Peter, we've got one more from overseas. You you kind of ruined that review because you left out the best part. I mean, come on. (laughs) What? The title. What? You read it straight out. The title was oh. best best podcast ever. P-A-W-D. Come on. That was the joke. Very clever. Very, Very clever, Pacific Very Veggie. Very clever, Pacific Veggie. Very clever. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Grace Me uh, says, really good. Hmm, really good? Okay, I'll take really good. I love this podcast much better. (laughs) The content's better than the title of the review, Camille. I love this podcast. Been listening for a while. It is so interesting, fun, and relevant, even though I'm in England. Well, that's good to know, (laughs) even though I'm in England. Um, Plus, it gave me inspiration for my master's thesis. Wow. And kept me sane throughout my degree. I added the wow. And so a big thank you there. Might even have to say thanks to Animal Justice in my acknowledgments. Oh, well, and a smiley face emoji. That's great. Thank you, Sarah. Aww, Grace that's me. such an honor. We are just so glad that we're helping delighted. you get through a degree. Yeah, well, anything that can help you get through a degree is like worth an acknowledgement. Oh, yeah. And if you love the podcast, we would love for you to leave us a review. You can do so, add to our five star reviews. It really helps people find the podcast and spread the word about animal issues and animal law. You can also support us on Patreon for as little as a dollar per month. Our prize tiers are as follows. At $5, you get a mailed card to say thanks and pawn order sticker. $20, you get a choice between a pawn order mug or a t-shirt. I have both. They're both fabulous. And we also have t-shirts available to everyone at shop.animaljustice.ca at our store. And if you're supporting us at $10 a month or more, you get a 15% discount in the online store. It's time for the news. And the first item, Peter, is about the election and specifically about a debate that we hosted. So so a lot's been going on in this election for animals, Peter. It's been pretty cool to watch. Um, we saw, we've seen now major parties include animal commitments in their platforms, which is pretty exciting. And um, Holly Lake, a journalist who wrote a piece for uh, the CBA, Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine, actually wrote in, in some depth about what the party platforms say. And about how in the first, for the first time in a federal election in Canada, animal issues are actually on the map. So we're going to link to that in the show notes. Check it out. But it's a great piece just about how animal laws have been considered by parliament more often recently and how finally, for the first time in an election, we're actually talking about this stuff, which is super important. I've noticed just a monumental shift in this election compared to 2019, certainly 2015. And, uh, you know, I think we've got to keep the momentum going. So one way we tried to do that, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, just a teaser for a future item, is by hosting an animal protection debate. Again, the first ever animal election time debate. Wow. Which is still available for viewing if you missed the live version. It's on the Animal Justice Facebook page or animalelectiondebate.ca. It's also translated into French if you prefer to watch it in French. Um, it was cool though, Peter. It was uh, three politicians. We invited all parties with seats in the House of Commons and the NDP, Liberals and Greens showed up. So we had Alistair McGregor from the NDP, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith from the Greens, and, sorry, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith from the Liberals, and Elizabeth May from the Greens. I'm 
So, Sorry, that was it. I, I was I was sure Bob Sopa came out of retirement for that debate, didn't he? No. Yeah, you know, we invited him, and he was just like, mm, no. <laughs> I was sure he was going to come out of retirement. That's a super inside pie and order joke that if you have not been listening since year one, you got to go back. Yet, but but he was, was a really anti-animal conservative MP who's no longer an MP. He I'm trying to remember though. You see, this is how bad I've been. I've been out of the loop. This is what happens with COVID. We we we. There was another guy who who we said would take up the soapbook mantle like we gave him the soapbook crown remember that it was a while ago it was like some guy in the conservative caucus might have been a woman i honestly don't remember but somebody said something so ridiculous that we said it was almost so puckian in there in, in the comment anyway could have been could have been bob zimmer he i think it actually attacked animal justice once in the house of commons um yeah, could, could have been be. john barlow with his egg gag stuff yeah, barlow <laughs> sounds familiar barlow sounds familiar all right you should invite less them. less do you think we're picking on the conservatives were not there's people like oh this no in many parties oh no there's a couple of liberals who are like r- right in that mix believe me but let me say i just prefer to focus on the ones who yes. are pro-animal and there's a lot of them and more and more of them every year so or more and more of them every election mm-hmm. so uh you know check out the debate i think a lot of people found it informative and helped them decide how to vote uh when you're thinking about how to vote because i just get this question so much peter people are always you know curious like who should i vote for to best help animals it's such an individual decision because i know most people don't vote just on animals you probably want to consider other issues too when you're casting your ballot so that's always part of the calculus <sighs> It also depends on your writing. Do you have someone who's endorsed by us via votersforanimals.ca? You can check that website to see. Um, if you don't, the best thing to do is call around to all the campaigns and follow, find out what the parties have to say about uh, animals. Uh, not just the parties, but also the individual candidates. Can you find someone who actually cares? Then that might make your decision easier. You know, if not, I usually say, look at the party platforms. Um, yeah, I was going to say as a joke that uh, just based on my love for animals, I, I purchased some property at the corner of Woodbine and Danforth so I could vote for my favorite MP. Um, everybody thinks because I live in Alberta, I'm obviously trapped by, uh, you know, that I'm obviously voting, you know, in a, in a conservative riding. People might laugh. I live in perhaps the safest NDP seat in the country. It is literally, it's the craziest thing. Like she is, really? if you go look at the polls, she's favored to win with over 50% of the vote. It's nuts. Well, this, wow. this, this riding has been NDP for the last four elections and she's fit. Our RMP is favored to win right now. It's like, it's listed in 338 as NDP. NDP safe. And it's like, she's favored by 50%. It's crazy. I don't know why. For some reason, like this part of Edmonton is an NDP, both provincial and federal. And it's, it's historically Linda Duncan's riding. And she sort of bequeathed it to an MP who just won for the first time last election, but she won it pretty handily last election. And now she's favored to be reelected by just like a massive margin. And if you go around the riding, like it's crazy, like you only see her sign. There's literally no other signs in the riding. I've never seen anything like it. Anyway, wow. it is. I'm telling you, don't be surprised when she wins this riding by over 50% of the vote. I'm telling you, it's crazy. It's the safest riding in the country. So it just occurred to me that by the time this episode is out, we'll actually know the result of the yeah, election. That's so true if you're listening too. and you want to see if Peter's prediction came through, just go check. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Edmonton, it's Edmonton Strathcona. So you will see that Edmonton Strathcona oh, yeah. is like the, it's it's crazy. It's, it's the only, well, no, it's not. Now it's the only non-conservative, but I think there are a couple of others that are always 
always close, like a liberal here or there can win in uh, in like Edmonton Center or Calgary Center. But uh, but this one is the only, this will not go conservative, this riding. It never does. Yeah. Well, so another story I just want to highlight. Um, well, first of all, I want to say a huge thank you to Holly Lake, who had written that piece we spoke about a minute ago because she was the moderator of the animal protection debate and she was fantastic. She's a journalist who's covered these issues for years, including the saga of the bills that worked their way through the house, the banned whale and dolphin captivity and shark fin captivity. Um, but another shout out to a piece in the Thai by journalist Christopher Gooley, who covered the debate, actually. And it was it was great coverage. He went um, in some detail about what each of the candidates had to say about animals while they were debating and and spoke about, uh, you know, especially provisions to um, protect animals used in farming, which is, you know, by far and away the largest group of animals used by humans. And of course, one of the leading sources of greenhouse gas emissions too, that contributes to climate change. So that was a great piece. And, you know, my overall thought on this, Peter, is just, it's so amazing to see these issues start to make their way into mainstream political discourse. And it makes me excited for what this parliament's going to do for animals. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that's really excited too. I'm, I, 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 I just, I, I'm, I need to be shown, Camille. I I, I want to have that optimism. I, I want to be. I'm just. I'm always a little pessimistic. I I agree with you. In the the debate was amazing, and I want to. And and I think there is some momentum on animal issues. And I I'm definitely excited about the fact that the platforms are coming forward and saying it more. Um, but uh, I am I am in that show me state. I want to see some real action coming forward because the the truth of the matter is in the last in the last Last parliament, we saw a lot of action um, on a lot of things that were even controversial things involving criminal justice that all, of course, got stopped by the call of the election. Um, and we still didn't see that 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 reform that I would have liked to have seen on some important matters involving animals. And uh, so I, I'm still in that. I need to be shown before I can uh, before I can get excited. So I'm I'm just a little more hesitant in my enthusiasm than you, Camille, at this stage. Well, well, you know, it, it, holding politicians to account for their election promises is significantly more than half the battle of yes, having these I issues agree. raised <laughs> in the election itself. It doesn't, it's not specific to animals. That's any election promise. That, that is true. So it's going to be up true. to us at Animal Justice and the rest of the animal community in, in Canada to do so. And well, in, in fairness, to the task. in fairness, Camille, like they did get on that electoral reform thing pretty promptly, right? I mean, oh, wait, sorry. Oh, that's a don't bad even, example. Don't even go there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on, Peter. Let's talk about Kiska. Oh, poor uh, Kiska. Oh, she, of course, is the solitary orca at Marineland. She's been called the world's loneliest orca because she's the only one in the world by captivity who's completely by herself without any other orca or other cetacean companions. And heartbreaking new videos just came out, Peter. Of uh, There were videos earlier in the summer of her floating listlessly in her pool. And of course, we filed an animal cruelty complaint with provincial authorities over that. But uh, more than that, the other week, two new videos came out. One aerial from, it looks like a drone shot, and the other one from um, eye level of a spectator at Marineland showing the same thing. They showed Kiska bashing her head against the side of the tank, repeatedly displacing water. Uh, it looked, it was very violent. It looked like she's in anguish. It looked horrible. So we forwarded that video to the authorities who are investigating and no word from them yet about what they plan to do. But the situation is getting more and more dire. We've got an animal who's seriously suffering. And I think a lot of people are starting to ask politicians and authorities what they're going to do about it. Yeah, it's uh, all the... the it's 
I almost don't know what to say about this. This story's been one of those. It reminds me, of course, it's my. As soon as you mention this story, it reminds me of Lucy the Elephant because it's the same sort of idea and the same sort of things that we continue to hear. And it it goes out of mind for long periods of time, and then we see footage, and it's it's disturbing footage, and it brings the batter back to action. And authorities seem continually reluctant to act, and it's hard to know what to to how to go forward. You get this feeling of helplessness don't you about this kind of story like it just i feel helpless about it but it's it's so disturbing and i, I know we both know that the story has a conclusion the problem is the conclusion is one that that seems deeply disturbing doesn't it yeah yeah it does and meanwhile there's rumors swirling that marine land is up for sale like it's, it's not clear what's going to happen to that facility in the future or the whales so I hope we'll know How more. Has, can I ask soon. a question? Can I ask a question, Camille? Do you you have a much better sense of marine land? I'm obviously not in the province. How has marine land fared through the pandemic? Is there any sense of of of, of information on the ground as to how they've they they must have suffered financially through the pandemic? I'm sure they did last year. I'm not so sure about this year. I, I just don't have any information about it. Um, you know, last year, obviously, I think they were closed for most of the season. They opened up later on, but um, with distancing and reduced capacity, so far as I know. Uh, this year, it's hard to say. Um, they're a private company, so all of their affairs are, are kept private. We don't have access to any financial records. There's no public disclosure about right. how they're doing. Uh, <sighs> all right. Well, well we, are, we are staying on top of Kiska. In more depressing news, Peter, you got Stanley list, yeah. Park Oof. in Vancouver, provincial officials are going in to kill a bunch of coyotes. Yeah, yeah, not it's a, a sad situation. Not, not a good, not a good story. I mean, this is this is a. Uh, first of all, let, let's 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 just let's let's get to. Jeez, I don't even know where to start with this. First of all, the the problem of coyotes is a problem on multiple levels. Like coyotes, coyotes are are uh, a, a serious a serious concern in a lot of ways. And I understand certainly as someone who walks a small dog, the concerns people have about interacting with coyotes. It's 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 concerning. I have a small dog and I don't want my dog to be attacked by coyotes any more than anyone else. But I, but, but again, whenever, whenever you see that, it's always like, there's this very simplistic way of reacting to the problem, right? It's like, okay, well, the coyotes are a harm and the coyotes are a problem. So we've got to get rid of the coyotes. That's the idea. It's like, it's not, okay, well, the coyotes are potentially a harm. So how do we treat the coyotes? How do we interact with the coyotes? How do we reduce the potential harm caused by the coyotes so that we can live in some degree of peace with the coyotes. It's very rarely looked at that. It's always looked at how do we how do we treat this as a problem and how do we remove the problem? And the easiest way to remove the problem in theory is just by killing all the coyotes. And it seems to me that that's the way we treat most of our wildlife problems as problems to be removed, to be eradicated, as pests to be taken care of. So I don't want to I don't want to sound like um, I'm, I'm minimizing or uh, harsh to the people who are legitimately scared of coyotes. And as I said, I, I have a small dog and I know my dog would be a nice mouthful for a coyote in theory. And in our own neighborhood, we have coyotes from time to time. And I do, I do have concerns about that because there have been attacks on small animals. But like, again, the, the, the proper way to deal with wildlife is not by simply eradicating it. It doesn't work that way. There's no, there's no reason to believe that's ever 
overworked. And, and again, like it's just every time we try to, 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 to decide that we want to remove wildlife from space, it's just never been an effective solution. And, and I don't know why we would think it would be effective in this case. No, we have this attitude that we can just eradicate problems by removing animals and that we can somehow manage wild animal populations by killing them. But it's really so much more complicated than that. Uh, you know, when you start to look at the root causes of the situation in Vancouver, there's a lot more to say, and particularly about how Vancouver as a city and the park sport has mismanaged this coyote situation for so long. Um, Peter, I was surprised to learn that it's not even an offense to feed coyotes in the park. Yeah, the feeding food stuff out. was really disturbing to me. Like, that's a big issue of, of why the coyotes have become such a problem to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, this story that we'll link to, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner Sarah Bly said a lot of people feel like this is a failure, a human failure, and that we could have done a lot more to prevent this. And I think that's exactly right. So then you start to look at the way that they're being killed. Um, so the province has contracted some trappers to come in and manage this process. They're being killed with, well, they're being caught with leg hold traps, which are an abomination. Um, and then they're being sedated in some manner and then killed with a captive bolt gun to the head. All of this is an incredibly stressful process for a wild animal whose instinct, quite rightfully, is to stay you know, away from humans that might harm them unless they're hungry and need to eat. So pretty troubling. Um, non-lethal removal wasn't considered. They, the ministry says it's not possible because the coyotes have become highly food conditioned and comfortable around humans. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that means you couldn't plop them somewhere quite remote. Um, but, you know, either way, it's just really sad. So at the time of recording this podcast, they've killed four coyotes already. And officials said they wanted to kill up to 35 coyotes, but the number might be might be somewhat lower than that. One of the biggest problems I've had whenever I hear from BC Wildlife is that I, I'm I'm just I, I've become a bit conditioned to have a bit of a response of whenever they say they can't. I'm always like my, my gut response is to question that because I've just it, it just seems that they say that every time, every time their first response is to put down. It's like always kill, kill first, ask questions later. And as a result, it's like uh, you start to question whether or not it's really true. Um, and again, I, I don't think that's a good place to be because like, I, I'm certainly, I know there are, there are animal advocates who feel otherwise. I, I personally do not think that every animal can be safely removed or, or rehomed. And I do think there are situations in which animals have become uh, 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 too much of a danger to humans and they do have to be uh, uh, killed, which is the word I prefer to use since that's what you're actually doing. But, um, but, but I don't think that's the first option. I certainly don't think like that's the best option. I don't think that's where we start from and we say, okay, the coyotes are a problem. Let's kill them. Right. I, and I also think in, even if, even if, if you start from the proposition where we do have to kill some of the coyotes, certainly any aspect of the solution has to involve looking at the long-term situation in Stanley Park and saying, okay, how did we get here? How do we get to a situation where we can remove this and uh, uh, so that we don't get back here again? And as you point out, Camille, we also have to look at, can we do this in a way that is the least invasive possible? It's the least harmful. That's the the, the most respectful of, of, of the coyotes' integrity that's going to cause them the least pain and suffering. And I do think that all these solutions are not necessarily being looked at in this case. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I haven't seen anybody talking about how they're going to prevent this situation from happening again, which is one thing that the fur bear defenders, they've been on this issue since day one, they've been asking for. It's just a conversation about what we're going to do differently in the future if this is already underway and can't be stopped at this point. 
So there we go. Another sad situation. Definitely. All right. Well, um, oh gosh, we have so much bad news today. It's terrible. <laughs> We're going to move over to Saskatchewan, sticking out west. Uh, in Saskatchewan, a farm has been charged with um, several counts of animal cruelty, which is interesting. Uh, we're sharing the story for a couple of reasons. There's, there's some interesting issues. One of them, Peter, to me, is that it's so rare that you actually see farms charged. But it seems like three, quote, cattle owners are facing animal cruelty charges um, after about 18 months after 107 animals were seized from a farm in northeastern Saskatchewan. And the three have been charged under a section of the provincial laws related to causing an animal to be in distress. And one of the owners faces two added criminal code charges of neglect. It's a really short story. And to me, everything in it shows what's wrong with our system. And it's like everything in it really puts to rest the basic idea that farmers have that they're well regulated, that like where neglect or suffering takes place, that it's like, you know, can be promptly dealt with by authorities. I mean, it's really interesting when you read the story, Camille, I, I thought the most telling part of the story is like the executive director of the protection service is trying to like, I think, I think is trying to say that it was well done and says, well, enough evidence, including detailed forensic veterinary work is required to ensure that charges are laid under the appropriate section of the act. And I think is expressing frustration and saying that we're at the mercy of how long these tests take. In most cases, it's anywhere from six to nine months, six to nine months to get forensic tests done for animal cruelty cases, just to show that these animals have suffered. I, I, I'm i trying to like piece together in my own mind what that means for the animals involved. Like, like just again, like this all stems from the basic idea, of course, that the animals cannot talk and report the abuse themselves. So now you have six to nine months, which is a time period in which I'm guessing the animals are still suffering because you can't take the animals well, into protective custody, I'm guessing, until unless they're taken into protective custody first. Well, they were seized on April 2nd, 2020. So they were seized. It's not clear when they started doing these tests, wow. if it was in advance or after they were seized. Probably after they were seized. But that's that's a huge problem in and of itself because now there's just so many issues that arise with that. When you're seizing leave, living beings for that long a period of time, like there are enormous costs involved with that. Like you just, there, this is what inhibits the ability to prosecute and investigate animal crimes because like you've got to have a massive budget if you're going to seize an entire cattle farm and and house them for that period of time. First of all, you've got to be damn sure that you've got uh, uh, um, you've got to be damn sure that you've got the charges because like the idea that, well, you'll make the farmer pay because like there are provisions under the act where you can get money from the farmer. Usually where you're talking about cases where the farmer, where the cattle aren't getting enough food, the reason they're not getting enough food is because the cattle farmer usually doesn't have enough money to get them the hay or the, the grass that they, they need to feed them with. So it's not always that easy to say you're going to seize or get the money back from the farmer. So like, again, these, these, these investigations and prosecutions are extremely cost intensive on the investigating body. So I'm just like the, the fact that it takes that long to go through with this, um, is, is, is troubling to me in the sense that the investigating body then bears the cost of holding the animals for that long. It's just like, well, again, yeah, maybe, yeah. but we don't know that they kept them. Uh, like yeah. if I had to guess, I'd say they probably killed you know, them. 
Well, potentially, potentially depends on the ownership issues and whether there was like a, you know, whether the farmers were thinking about getting them back. But um, I'd be surprised if they didn't just sell them and, you know, give them off to slaughter to some other farmer that would, quote, treat them well. But I'm just I'm kind of amazed that it would take that long. Like, why does it take six to nine months? I'm not an expert in forensic veterinary work. Under resourcing, I think, is the only thing that you can claim there. Yeah, possibly. There we go. Yeah, there we All go. Of these but interesting though. For me. Interesting though that it's a it seems to be a neglect case, yeah. uh, which is really the only time that we see farms charged, and it tends to be for cows that are visible from the outside because any animals inside, pigs, chickens, dairy cows, usually kept inside, um, the public just has no way of seeing those animals, and so there's much less of an opportunity for people to report and for action to be taken. So I'm not surprised it's cows, and I'm not surprised it's neglect because that tends to be the types of cases where you see these charges. The apocalypse farm. I've said it before, that is where you get charged. Yeah. All right. Our next news item. Congratulations to our friend, Victoria Schroff. Victoria, BC-based, Vancouver-based animal lawyer, and she's releasing an animal law book through LexisNexis. That is great news. We don't get many animal law books in this country. I know how hard it is to actually write one. So we wanted to uh, make mention of it here today. I've already pre-ordered a copy. I look forward to uh, reading it. And uh, yeah, it'll be a useful addition, I'm sure, to everyone's library who has an interest in these issues. Yeah, it looks like it's coming out September 30th. We'll post a link in the show notes so you can order it if you're interested. But um, the description on LexisNexis says it provides commentary about the main issues in animal law and seems to focus on how animal law interacts with other practice areas like family law, criminal law, wills and estates, environmental law, and professional liability. So I'm sure it'll be a good resource for those who practice in this area. Absolutely. And finally, finally, we have... More bad news. We just stuck in a good news story to break it up a little bit. This one is very recent, and it is a terrible piece of news, uh, though though news suggests that it came out of the blue and doesn't happen regularly like every year. But uh, it does sort of happen every year in the Faroe Islands. This one just happened to be uh, really well recorded. Um, anger uh, has emerged over, Jesus, an incredible killing of 1,400 dolphins in the Faroe Faroe Islands, a traditional, although record catch. It's 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 almost it's horrifying to read. If you've ever seen the Cove, Camille, it's a lot like the Cove, right? It's a very very yeah. similar thing. They're killed with knives. It's just so horrifying to imagine how this takes place. Just, just yeah, the boats herded them into shallow waters in the fjord in the Faroe Islands, and then they're killed with knives, and then carcasses pulled ashore. Uh, the images are awful. Like the footage of the hunt shows dolphins. They're thrashing around in the waters. Water's turning red with blood. It's very similar, as you point out. Peter, to what we see in the cove, but interesting because I think the Faroe Islands fly a little bit more under the radar than the Japanese whale, a sorry, sorry dolphin hunt. Um, but you know, people who participate in this defend this. They say it's a quote, sustainable way of gathering food from nature and an important part of cultural identity. And you just got to wonder at this point why that excuse still holds water. Just because you've always done something. Traditional, a traditional practice driven for many hours by speedboats and jet skis. Very traditional. Um, And you look at how many of them. My God, so terrible. And they're such beautiful animals. They're just so beautiful. It's just horrifying. And they're so, I mean, I always hate to, I always hate to fall back on their intelligence and stuff like that because like I'm not, I'm always, I just, I don't like to use 
use that as the justification for why they shouldn't be killed because I it's not like I feel like the less no, intelligent you know what I mean the less intelligent cow should be killed like I don't I don't feel that way but I I do it just bothers me so much I my encounters with dolphins have always been so so profound to me and they're just such beautiful animals and I've I've encountered them in New Zealand in the water on their terms like in the open water and it's just like so powerful and so beautiful and then just to see them just butchered like this it's just so horrifying just absolutely horrifying yeah now there's some other interesting elements to this because uh, apparently it's not just you know people from outside the Faroe Islands who are mad about this but locals are also upset um a lot of people don't support this killing and Faroe Islands are known for killing pilot whales but dolphins are less popular prey and so it sounds like what happened is is people actually thought that this pod was estimated to be only 200 dolphins instead of 1,400, which is quite a discrepancy. And uh, even though they figured out the true side of the pod once they started killing them, they kept on doing it. And so local people were really upset by that. Um, apparently, this was approved by local authorities in some manner and no laws were broken. But... Um, you know, yeah, legality yeah, we've, doesn't we've, we've got it right. To morality. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. I've just I got to the point. I've got it wrong. It's legal. They didn't break. There's no laws were broken. And more importantly, oh, well, then. more importantly, Camille, it's humane. I, I, I got it wrong. <laughs> it's like all the wash words are used here. Right? It's legal. It's, it's perfectly regulated. And it's humane. Like, as we know, those words mean a grand total of nothing. Like, it's it's unbelievable. No. Eh? It's legal. Oh, fantastic. Great. It's legal. Relevant. <laughs> this is great. I love. I love. I love when they say it's legal. It's legal. Great. Okay. Fantastic. The Grin and Goat is Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and abroad. The Grin and Goat's your one-stop shop for everything, including T-shirts for animal advocacy, footwear, accessories, kids' fashion, personal care products, zero waste products, outerwear, and various items for your home. Vegan shopping has never been easier. Whether you're shopping for yourself or buying gifts for a loved one, you have the comfort of knowing that everything at The Grinning Goat is completely animal-free. And as a Pod and Order podcast listener, you can also save 15% off Lafrick backpacks and pegs during the entire month of September by using the code PAWSEPTEMBER at grinninggoat.ca. And for our main topic today, I am joined by Chris Rudnicki. Chris is Rusonic O'Connor Robbins Ross and Angelini LLP's lead appellate counsel and a partner of the firm. His creative approaches have achieved outstanding results for his clients. Dozens of his cases have been published in official law reports and or featured in the national media. Chris regularly delivers professional development seminars to his colleagues and publishes articles on novel areas of the law. Before joining the team at uh, his firm, Chris studied law at the University of Windsor and volunteered while completing his studies at the Community Legal Aid Clinic, providing legal help to low-income persons charged with criminal offenses. And Chris is also a friend of animal justice and a fellow animal lover, and we're very happy that he's uh, working with Peter Sankoff on the Chen case that we're going to dive into. So, Chris, welcome to Pawn Order. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. All right. So we're working together on a case, the Queen and Chen. It's, uh, I guess, before we get into the details of it and what animal justice is interested in it, we should tell our listeners a little bit about what it's about. So uh, do you think you could give a brief synopsis of sort of what happened uh, in the allegations and the guilty plea and the lower court decisions? Sure thing. Uh, So this is a case out of Alberta, uh, and it was first tried in the uh, Alberta Provincial Court. 
Um, Mr. Chen um, was charged with one count of animal cruelty in relation to a pretty nasty beating he gave his dog, Cinnamon. Um, Cinnamon ended up with uh, some broken bones, uh, some pretty severe bruising. And while the dog made a full uh, recovery, um, obviously it was a really, uh, as far as animal cruelty goes, a pretty serious offense. Um, He ended up pleading guilty. uh, And then at the end of the day, uh, was sentenced to 90 days, uh, what's called an intermittent sentence, which means that he got to serve the sentence on weekends, going in on Friday uh, afternoons or evenings and coming out on Monday mornings. Yeah. So, yeah. So as you mentioned, he pled guilty. Um, You know, interestingly, uh, the case only came about, I guess, because a couple of bystanders heard the beating of the dog, called the police, um, and then, you know, who noticed the injuries and things kind of went from there. Um, What was interesting about the Alberta Court of, uh, sorry, the Provincial Offenses Court that imposed the sentence is the Crown basically got what it wanted. It wanted 90 days in prison, two years of probation. Defense wanted a conditional sentence order plus probation. So, uh, and then another important context, I think, is that Mr. Chen had also previously agreed to a prohibition order of 10 years, but sometime in advance of his plea, I'm not sure what the mechanism was for him doing so, but he did. So he was also subject to not having an animal for 10 years, which I think everyone agrees is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So defense obviously wasn't happy with this and they appealed to the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench. Yeah, the Summary Conviction Appeal Court. So they, they, they you have an appeal um, as of right on a sentence appeal to the Summary Conviction Appeal Court. So they're entitled to bring an appeal. Uh, and then at the Court of Queen's Bench, um, the reviewing judge effectively agreed with the um, with the defense that the trial judge had placed too great an emphasis on the principles of denunciation and deterrence and not great enough an emphasis on the uh, principles of, of rehabilitation and reintegration um, and substituted that conditional sentence they were uh, initially asking for, which basically means a sentence of house arrest instead of a sentence of jail. Um, and I think he was moved in particular by the psychiatric report that was filed by the uh, defense on sentencing. Um, which basically held that Mr. Chen had some anger management issues and really didn't appreciate that he was kind of raised to discipline dogs in this way and really didn't appreciate the, the full um, the full uh, evil, I guess, of, of what he was doing at the time and, and that he had since changed um, since the offense had occurred. Yeah, that's right. And I think the psychiatric report is important because um, you know, it did describe his personal circumstances. He grew up in a household where domestic violence was, I shouldn't say domestic violence, but corrective violence was something that was common for him to experience from his parents, presumably. Um, He grew up in China too. He was an immigrant to Canada and he was pretty young too. I think he was about 20 or 21 when the offense was committed. Yeah, 20. 20. So it seemed like the judge saw a prospect for rehabilitation plus uh, coupled with the counseling that he was doing and that he'd be able to continue doing if he was subject to house arrest. But Crown Attorney uh, did not appreciate the uh, (laughs) overturning of the 90 days in jail. And so they appealed to the Alberta Court of Appeal. And that's where we all come in. <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what you and Peter plan to argue on behalf of animal justice and what we're saying this case uh, is significance is with respect to animals. Um, well, it's, it's a very rare case uh, where animal cruelty offenses get before a provincial appellate court. Um, and so it's a real opportunity to say something important about um, the nature of sentencing for animal, uh, for really violence against animals offenses more, more generally. Um, the Parliament in 2008 increased the, uh, the maximum sentences uh, for animal cruelty offenses. Um, and the Crown's making a pretty clever argument that um, just like in Freezen, a Supreme, a recent Supreme Court case where the um, the the court uh, 
held that sentences have to go up in in response to uh, Parliament increasing the maximum sentences. Uh, so too is the Crown making that same pitch here, and I think credibly making the pitch that you know animal cruelty sentencing is kind of all over the place. You get some some courts imposing non custodial sentences, some courts imposing like almost penitentiary sentences. It's a real it's a real mix, and so they're looking for some guidance. And of course, the Crown saying we want jail to be the guidance, um, and uh, we have a bit of a different goal. Uh, we agree that it's very significant that Parliament has decided to intervene here, uh, and in our factum cite a whole host of, as I think this was um, your uh, intervention in the factum specifically, but there's a whole, it's not just the federal government that's intervening, it's also provincial governments across the country um, that are intervening in order to to, to enhance protections um, for animals. And so the purpose is to really help the courts tell the truth about what what animals are, what, you know, the fact that they have capacities for experiencing pain, emotion, thought, language, that they have complex and rich lives, and that those are inherent worthy of protection um, above and beyond uh, the animal's relationship with a particular human being, their owner uh, or their companion. Um, so we don't really have any stake in the outcome of this particular case in terms of whether Mr. Chen gets his conditional sentence or not. Um, but we are invested, I think, in the broader jurisprudential point, um, which is that animals are have inherent dignity uh, worthy of protection by the criminal law. Yeah, and I like that aspect of what we're, we're submitting. Um, you know, we talk about the 2000 amendments to the criminal code. And just so everyone listening, if you're not up on this, um, is aware, uh, prior to the 2008 amendments to the criminal code that affected sentencing provisions in animal cruelty cases, I believe, Chris, it was only six months in prison was the maximum sentence that was allowable. And um, the courts uh, are now able to impose up to five years in prison in an indictable case, which doesn't occur too rarely, um, but that's now available. So, you know, it's interesting because I find prosecutors uh, focus a lot on the term of imprisonment. But at the same time that Parliament changed that provision, they also made some other changes as well. They allowed for restitution. And importantly, they allowed for increased prohibition orders. So a time within which a person cannot obtain or reside with an animal. So it used to be two years, and now there's an unlimited or indefinite term available of prohibition. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think one thing that I like about the way that we're arguing this case is that we point out that uh, it's not just about sentencing, but there's a lot of other factors that go into, or I shouldn't say it's not just about sentencing. It's not just about imprisonment or punishment, but there's a lot of other factors that go into crafting an appropriate sentence. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly right. And that's a point made pretty forcefully in the factum, and in particular around the conditional sentence as, as a tool of sentencing. You can do a lot more um, with a sentence in the community that requires someone to take counseling, that requires someone to volunteer, that requires someone to, to pay restitution either to their to the animal that was harmed, or I suppose it's never going to be to the animal, but to the, to the caretaker of the animal in order to to make up for the harm that it suffered. Um, and so these are these are creative uh, solutions that don't necessarily rely on the blunt instrument of jail in order to make whole the harm that was caused. Um, and as you say, I mean, the 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 in particular, the prohibition on owning further animals um, is a real uh, powerful tool because you can you can effectively say you've lost this privilege. Like you you know you can't uh, you can't get this back again. Now, on a personal level, I think I'd like to see 
some capacity for offenders to return before a court at some point uh, in the prohibition order. I'm not sure that's in the legislation now. Um, probably it's part of the royal prerogative of mercy. So if you wanted to, you could apply to like as a as a the pardons mechanism. You could get it that way. Um, but I'd like to see some kind of mechanism for someone to sort of say, you know, what I did was awful. Um, but here's all the things I've learned. Here's all the work that I've done, and I think I'm ready. Um, and perhaps to to be able to be sort of welcomed back into the fold of animal lovers. Um, but I'm not sure that that's something that uh, I think it's something probably Parliament has to do, not something the courts can do. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought about using that through um, a pardoning mechanism, but fascinating. Um, I, I agree. Actually, I don't, I don't see a problem with that. I think um, you know giving judges discretion over these matters is really appropriate in these cases because right. they are a best place to evaluate the evidence and decide whether this person has shown rehabilitation. Um, you know, you could reasonably expect that if someone's taking the time and the trouble and usually the financial resources to come back before a court and say that they would like to interact with animals, that that's important to them. And likely they wouldn't be prone to committing another offense in relation to them. But yeah, interesting case. Or maybe maybe they've got a partner uh, who owns a dog or who wants to own a dog, or maybe they've got uh, like a, a a parent who's who's no longer able to care for a dog. There's lots of you know fact patterns we can think of where that uh, that might be uh, appropriate. But I think we'd also want a mechanism for really making sure that they've you know that they're a responsible caretaker because animals deserve protection. Yeah, perhaps some period of supervision or um, easing into right. the situation. Right. Yeah. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the principles of sentence and how they've been applied in cruelty cases, because specifically what the Crown has really focused on in this case, and which I think they tend to focus on in most animal cruelty offenses, and you mentioned earlier, is general deterrence and denunciation. wonder, can you describe for our listeners, maybe who don't have a criminal law background, what is meant by trying to deter and denunciate? Um, so, yeah, so, so the criminal code has a number of different principles of sentencing that uh, sentencing judges are obliged to balance um, in the course of coming to a fit sentence, an appropriate sentence for the offender before them. Um, and sentencing judges are guided by what past judges have said about which of those principles are, are most prominent or most appropriate uh, given the offense. So an obvious example would be like serious violent offenses. You're going to be focusing on denunciation and deterrence over rehabilitation and reparation. Um, specifically, denunciation refers to society denouncing conduct, exclaiming to the world, this conduct is wrong. And for the sort of length of the sentence as being a shorthand for that denunciation, the more, the higher the sentence, the greater the denunciation uh, of the particular conduct in question. So, so uh, you, is it fair to say that's sort of symbolic? Yeah, absolutely symbolic. Uh, we are sacrificing the individual on the altar of, of public uh, denunciation, um, which is a whole other conversation, I think. Uh, but the and in terms of deterrence, that's more of an empirical question, really. It's like a policy goal, um, which is uh, general deterrence is making sure that, you know, because a significant sentence has been imposed on this individual, the public at large will be deterred from com committing similar acts in the future. The idea being, if we know that this person who committed an animal cruelty offense is getting a big whack in terms of jail, we are less likely as, as uh, individuals to also uh, engage in that kind of offending. Uh, although the problem is, of course, that the, the stats tell us that that doesn't work. <laughs> that, that general deterrence doesn't really happen um, uh, at all. And so, but, that, but nonetheless, it is a principle of sentencing and it's something that the, uh, the judges are obliged to consider. And then finally, you have specific deterrence, which is uh, de deterring the individual offender in question. Um, if they are engaging in a course of conduct, 
product that is repetitive and like they don't appear to be stopping, the logic being, well, we can impose a greater sentence to deter them specifically from engaging in this conduct again. Um, not really a play for Mr. Chen because he, uh, this is his first offense. He was a youthful first offender at the time of the offense, uh, hasn't committed any, uh, any similar offenses since. And the, you know, as the summary conviction appeal judge said, the uncontradicted evidence um, at, at the sentencing hearing was that he appeared to have been genuinely remorseful to have learned his lesson and to be unlikely to offend again. So not really at play for Mr. Chen. A case like Mr. Chen's is, presents difficult problems, I think, for sentencing judges, because you have, on the one hand, a youthful first offender which uh, who is entitled to um, a degree of understanding and a degree of restraint. Um, but on the other hand, you have a pretty serious offense. Like we're talking about a nasty beating, what would be an aggravated assault if it had been committed on a human, which would be worth like, you know, years, not months in jail. Um, and uh, but you've got uh, so a very serious offense, but you've got a very sympathetic offender. And that, that presents tough sentencing problems, no doubt, for judges. Mm. Well, what I like about this case and the way that we've presented um, our arguments is we we say, you know, instead of just focusing on general deterrence and denunciation, which has been historically what the emphasis is in cruelty cases, consider specific deterrence. And I agree with you. I think it's an empirical question as to whether this idea of deterrence is uh, something that actually works. Specific deterrence, different matter from general deterrence. And I think there is something to be said for that in, in his case. And the evidence did support the idea that he did uh, show some aspects of being specifically deterred, um, but also on rehabilitation. And, you know, in that respect, Mr. Chen had made some efforts toward um, that end, um, reparations. So there are abilities in the criminal code for judges to order that somebody pay for the care of an animal and just acknowledging the impact of the harm done on an individual, which, of course, in this case is an animal. So what I like is I think that the way that we're presenting the case and asking judges to consider the principles, it's in a way that focuses not on just uh, the symbolism of sentencing as a societal you know, collective endeavor, but focusing specifically on what's best for this individual in terms of preventing them from reoffending, but also what's best for uh, you know the, the way we treat animals as a whole and this idea that animals matter to society and um, not just sort of broadly animals that haven't been affected by this specific events, but even the specific animals here, is there an ability for reparations? Yeah. Um, is that something that could happen? Yeah. Cinnamon was hurt. And what, what needs to happen in order to make cinnamon whole? I think that's a really important question. A question we ask routinely in the course of, of uh, offenses involving human uh, victims. And it's, it's one we should also be asking when it comes to animal victims. Yeah. 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 Well, um, thanks, Chris, for filling us in a little bit on what you and Peter have been arguing in the case. I'm really excited to see how this goes down. By the time this podcast comes out, actually, it comes out on the day that the case will be argued. So hopefully we'll have a decision again before too long and we'll be able to see the impact that um, animal justice has made in this case. But uh, thank you again, Chris. Really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective. My pleasure. Thank you, Camille. Heroes and Zeros. All right, now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. All right. And we have a bit of a group hero in group this episode. Group heroes. Yes, we have a great group of heroes. Go we ahead. thought it was important to acknowledge the other groups that uh, we worked with to pull off the first ever animal election debate. No so question. Hats off. Love yes. these groups. It was so great to work together. Montreal SPCA. Yes. Nation Rising. Yes. 
Vancouver Humane Society, and World Animal Protection. You are all our heroes. There is nothing better than doing something like this for the first time. It is hard to get these things off the ground, and firsts are really important because they lead to sustained success. You are all my hero. That is great, great stuff. And want to give us just a special shout out to to two folks at Animal Justice who were instrumental. Uh, Shannon Nickerson, of course, our podcast wow. producer, who always our hero, always off any any production event. And Sarah Jansen, who did such a tremendous amount of work to make this happen, and very grateful to both of them. Always, cool always. Event. Yes, it was fantastic. So for every hero, there's a zero. And who is our zero? This is kind of a weird zero, don't we? This is a weird <laughs> zero. This is, <laughs> it, it involves minks. It involves minks. Uh, the BC government is a zero. And let's yes. explain why they're the zero. So earlier this week when we were recording, um, I got a press release on, I guess it was Wednesday morning, announcing a press release was from the BC government. And it was announcing that the BC government was phasing out mink farms over mink a farms five month period. Mink farms are gone. No, they're not. Pretty cool. No. 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 Turns out the press release was a hoax. I'm not sure who's responsible, but it was very well done. Um, it fooled me for a period of time. Fooled a few people. Um, before the BC NDP press secretary DM'd me on Twitter to be like, it's a hoax. I was like, oh, well, why isn't it real? So, so we've decided here, to give them a mild zero. It has to be mild because you can't force a government into doing something. <laughs> so we're giving them a light no, zero. It, it was because funny they though, because it actually resulted that, right? in a Vancouver Sun story. Like it, it yeah. was um, reported on as being true. And mm. I do hope it brought a little bit of heat on the BC government for mm. actually not doing this because there's no reason in 2021 why we still have mink farms. Because they should be doing it. So they are getting our zero just for that, Camille, because gosh darn it, there is no reason. And we know as well that it is a COVID risk on top of everything else, is it not? Cruel, unnecessary, puts public health at risk. What more evidence do you need at this point? And that is a perfect circle to square this show. We started with COVID. We end with COVID because, Camille, I'm convinced when Pawn Order is signing off into the twilight of its existence, we'll be talking about COVID. Sad as that sounds. I, I really hope not, but we'll see. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We had a great time being with you today. That went on a lot longer than I thought it would, as it always does when you and I start jabbering, Camille. Until next time. All right. Have a great one. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Nickerson. See you next time on Pawn Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ow!